Hi everybody and welcome to this episode of the Tracker Bros podcast. The Tracker Bros is my buddy Marcus and myself, Daniel. We are both serious fitness and tech enthusiasts, product testers and wearable geeks. The goal of this podcast is to give you guys more insight into the use case scenarios for different wearables and apps to enhance your health and athletic performance. We want to give you a better understanding on what exists on the market and what your personal benefit could be. On this podcast, we will talk to amazing app designers, vendors, CEOs, and other people working in the wearable and app market, but also to ambitious athletes using tech to enhance their performance, or just regular people trying to live a healthy lifestyle. We hope you will be inspired by our podcast and get some new ideas on how to improve your life and performance. With that in mind, enjoy listening and always continue to perform better with data. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode five of the Tracker Bros podcast. Today we have Frank Tag on the show. But before we continue, I need to do two things. First, I want to say thank you to Eric Russell, a.k.a. the Techie Agent, who we had over as guest in an early show. The Techie Agent reviews fitness trackers on his big YouTube channel. He lately posted a shout-out video to the Tracker Bros on his channel that was quite funny. Thanks for referring your big audience to our humble podcast, Eric. And second, I need to make a big disclaimer. Today you will be exposed to an overdose of German accent. We have three Germans on the show trying to speak English. Be aware, this can severely harm your ears. And just don't laugh. <laughs> uh, talking about uh, Germans trying to speak English. In our first show, we had special guest Ali Zigari from uh, Watson Blue. And when I read his name, I thought he's an Italian fellow and he would enter the show with something like, Ciao ragazzi, uh, welcome, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, but uh, he turned out to be a South African uh, and uh, native speaker, native English speaker. It was very embarrassing for us. <laughs> okay, let us recap. In our previous podcast, we had representatives of vendors like Ali Zigari about load and recovery management using Watson Blue. We had Chuck Hazard from Aura talking about the ring and sleep. We had Eric, the techie agent, Russell, the famous fitness mm -hmm. tracker reviewer and YouTuber. And we had Marcus Feli, a CrossFit athlete. Today, we're going to have a more practical point of view on gear, the view of an athletic trainer. Uh, Frank, welcome to our show. I don't even know what to call you. I know you in many roles over the years. And at least I know you're a book author on strength and resisting training mm -hmm. and nutrition, athletic trainer, founding member of the German Strength and Conditioning Academy, which is called DKKA and reviewer of studies and scientific literature. Can you please tell our listeners about 
all these things you do, <laughs> and especially, when do you sleep? Yeah, I sleep like a normal person. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, what do I do? What do I don't do? That's the main <clears throat> problem. I have written two books on strength and conditioning. I've written a book on nutrition. But the funny thing is, most of the things I write about, most of the things I do are self-taught. Because I have been an athlete in a more... I would say more obscure sport. I've, I've been doing martial arts for most of my life. And when I uh, finished school, I was, was thinking about going to college, going to university. But in the end, I decided I'm absolutely not mature enough to spend five years again sitting on a bench. Just took all my gear, everything I had, all my money and went to China. Um, I actually uh, spent a year with the Shaolin monks. After that, I went to Thailand and spent some time training Muay Thai. And the main idea of everything I do is, it, it came from the idea of, oh my God, I just have to survive this shit. Um, they are killing me. Um, so most of the had to solve were my own because I had to learn how to survive in an environment where it's completely normal to just ignore any science there is and just push you to your limits so many times and if like from 100 people 70 die that's still 30 champions um <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're not this sport is not famous for uh, taking care of recovery is it um <laughs> No. If you wake up at 5.40 to, the, to a military siren that is uh, basically shouting in your ear the newest song that the communist army thinks uh, is a great idea um, to wake up the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, um, then you just wake up in the morning and you say, oh my God, on. and then you have like three or four training, uh, at least three or four trainings a day, usually it's four. So you have six to eight hours of training a day, six days a week. And at some point, you have to realize you have to be smart about it because otherwise you have very high injury potential. Um, and that was the first time I actually read about that. I had spent my whole youth training and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and when I was there, I realized either I'm efficient or I'm going to die. <laughs> now, my main problem was I had this these Chinese teachers and they were lovely people, but they were also completely crazy. Um, they just, you know, when you get a grown man into a split, I've heard that this is the only way that a man can learn what a woman feels during childbirth. Well, I don't know. I haven't learned how to do a split. I have learned how to do a split when a Chinese guy is jumping on my back and telling me not to cry. So, <laughs> <laughs> How do I get more flexible fast? Because if I'm down in it, I don't care who's on my back. Um, that was the first thing because I had to develop this scientific mindset because I had to make sure what I was reading would actually work. Because if it doesn't work, I had this guy on my shoulder that found it absolutely funny to go like, okay, now go, Lilek, Lilek. And you're like, no, no, oh my God. <laughs> right. Oh. Kung Fu slowly, okay? But please, no cry, you know, baby, okay? And, 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 and you're like, 
these Shaolin people are crazy. But from that point on, that that's how I learned from being an athlete. And at some point, people came to me, you know all this stuff about training, because I didn't stop learning. I just took it up like a sponge. I read maybe around 100 textbooks and a few thousand studies maybe um, in that time alone just to understand training because I realized I had no idea what to do even though I'm training all my life and I'm just a bad athlete um, that's not that's not something that I say about myself just to kick myself but I have I have no potential <laughs> <laughs> there's people that are naturally athletic they just they just go nuts you, you do you, you tell them to do something and they do it and they improve you just tell them i'm you know i'm just as, as explosive as a potato learn something i have to do it a thousand times more than the other guy if i do strength training i have to push myself harder if i push myself too hard during endurance training that's great i have the genetics for it but wait my connective tissues aren't made up for it so i'm just getting inflamed so i have great endurance while hurting and bad so i have so to, to, to succeed, which I actually did, I won two silver medals later on in the world championships. Um, the only thing I could do was train as smart enough without breaking down. And that's how I learned that. Um, that's, that's how I actually got into this. When people realized this, they were keeping this, this whole thing up where like, you have to write a book, you have to train me. And when I just went back to Germany, I went to the university and spent most of my free time actually in gyms training people for free because I thought it was interesting. At some point, someone said to me, you know what, how many hours have you trained people? Like, maybe like, I don't know, a few hundred, maybe a thousand. They're like, you just spent a thousand hours training people for free. And that was the point where I realized that it was really, really <laughs> and, and just made it a business. Um, it, it took a while. I, I studied something completely different. I'm a psychologist by trade, but I learned how to be even more scientific during my university studies. Um, then I just went out of it. I was interested in, in the psychology of uh, elite people. And at some point, martial artists came to me, asked me to make training plans for them. And at some point, there were a few people from the military that were like, hey, you know, I'm going into uh, this and that selection process and i have no idea what i'm doing and i have the, the the feeling that nobody around here does but i really want to go into a unit x by that um so they have this test and i said yeah that's pretty simple i had no idea at the time but i just looked at it there's a few things and i just did it with them they succeeded at, at some point there were four or five people and then i'm like yeah you just got me into this unit yeah it's pretty elite i'm like yeah okay i, I don't care um and uh, this is this is basically how my whole career went until a few people told me I should write books, um, and I actually stopped my work as a as a business consultant just to go on to uh, and sell books. And now we have founded the German Strength and Conditioning Academy, mostly because we realized that there is not a single, not one certificate, not one license that you can get in Germany that we found as founders of the DKK that, you know, is sufficient. It's, um, it's, it's not that we want everyone to be the best trainer, but we just realized uh, most people have no idea what they're doing, even up to the highest levels. And um, it's not that, it's not that hard. 
it's like it's not like other countries are majorly there's the the rts in the uk there's great athletic training in france then the us has the nsca australia is just way up there with very very well set up training programs yeah that's what i do <laughs> right now that's all i do and probably not half of it because i just do psychological coaching as well and i don't know <laughs> all right uh frank Can you please name the two books you wrote and what they are exactly about? Okay, um, the first one is basically, it's called Stärker, Breiter, Schneller, which is the German <laughs> translation of Bigger, Faster, Stronger, which I realize if I, if I actually set it up in the US and published it in the US, I think uh, Mark Bell would have sued me. I think they had a documentary exactly with that title. But It's basically everything I know. Or, no, that's wrong. Everything I knew about training in 2014, beginning of 2015, which is a lot less than I do now, which I just realized. And I just put it in one 800-page book. And it was, was the book that I wanted to write because there was no equivalent. There was no accessible book that actually took it all from strength training, conditioning training, to explosiveness training, to conditioning for martial artists, to bodybuilding. Just put it in one book, described in a way that you can use it, combining barber training, exercise prescription, uh, training plans. It was basically the book that everyone told me, you can never finish. And while writing it, I actually believed that for some time, like going, I finished the book. And, The second book, uh, it's basically called Satz Stark Schlank, which, which means um, it's not that fun in English. The title sucks in English. <laughs> Say it. Schlank, <laughs> which is basically uh, satiated. Okay. <laughs> slim? Yeah, slim or lean. It's, which I think right now I'm more satiated than anything but <laughs> actually finding you know, names for books in German is quite hard every time I try to do this they just don't sound as epic as they would in English but when I translate my titles they're like eh, yeah I, I, I could have thought up more cooler names and name is the first just for nutrition But uh, um, some some things uh, sound better in German, like the Rittersport Werbung. Quadratisch praktisch gut. You have to say it in the right intonation, so everyone thinks um, that that's one thing about German. If you, if you, I think if you use German the right way, you can just make it sound like you're screaming everyone together while you're reading yeah. a love poem. It's <laughs> funny. It, 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 it's so funny because usually you can be so nice in this language, but everyone around the world is like, "Wow, oh, we just talk German. Sounds so, so aggressive." And like, "Oh, really?" <laughs> Hans, Franz, Frühstück. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a joke with my Swiss friend. Basically, you know, Germans. There, I mean, you guys are Germans, so you know, um, we're much more reserved about you know history and what to say and whatnot. When you get to Switzerland, no one cares. They're just busting your 
balls about all these jokes that you can never do in Germany without getting fired. And I spent one and a half years traveling with a Swiss guy. And at some point, he just, you know, he, he wakes up, just tells me, you know, Frank, I just decided I'm going to call my two sons in the future, Hans and Franz. <laughs> stand up in the morning and, and just call Hans, Franz, Frühstück. <laughs> I, I was dying. I was dying. I mean, seriously, that was one of the funniest things. Remember, this guy had a Swiss accent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we got a little off topic. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> uh, so the second book um, is about nutrition mainly. Yes, it's about nutrition and uh, all the basics. There's, you know, most nutrition books, they're either textbooks and they're incredibly boring and incredibly complex. Or they're written by an author that just wants to sell his diet. So and they, these are usually very popular and they have some science in it. And it's usually wrong. It, it's, it's usually wrong. So my idea was like writing a book that just, again, has all these interesting topics, um, but also uses a lot of curse words and is at the same time mostly right about the science as accurate as kids can get. Um, and it's about all the strategies. So I, I don't, I don't, while, while I'm first book, I think there's something left where you could say, ah, no, there's, there's stuff that could be in there, even though it's 800 pages. My nutrition book tells you everything you need to know because it just cites most of the, the, the big papers and most of the big books that you would use today, like, um, like from, from Louisburg clinical, uh, I think it's called, is it called clinical nutrition? I think something like the clinical sports nutrition and a few textbooks. So everything is in there. It's, it's mostly up to date. So there may be some small things that change in the future, but these are small issues that I don't know. An athlete needs to know more than that if they are healthy. I don't know. I, I can't think of anything that would change so much. It's a bit arrogant, but... <laughs> okay. Yeah, usually not not with my training book. I think the conditioning part is shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not shit. It's just too small. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um so how many studies did you read before um for your nutrition book? <laughs> um I spent basically one year preparing which is insane, but that's, that's, that's how I usually work. Um, I was living off the money that I did with my first book and, and mostly, and I, uh, I was doing a lot of training still as, as a PT and seminars, but I, I dialed that back a lot to write the second book. And I spent a year reading uh, textbooks. Uh, so allowed, uh, there should be around 15 to 25 textbooks at least which um, is the most I've ever done. Um, because if you want to understand a topic, you should start at some point and realize where you don't know things. So somewhere in that process, I end up with a book of biochemistry basics. And um, I did cry a lot reading. <laughs> it's insane. And then there were a few hundred. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it should be around a thousand, maybe. 
around a thousand, but because it, it really depends on the topic. You just walk into one topic, then you start with the review that is actually talking about it, then you see something that is different from what's written in the textbook. So you're like, okay, now I'm going to read everything about this. One day later, 20 studies later, you realize, oh, I just opened the box of Medora. Three days later, you have just looked into three different systems and ordered another textbook. So maybe a thousand studies. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of organizing. It's a lot of realizing how wrong you were about certain things and then realizing that it never actually mattered except for your understanding. <laughs> okay. Uh, for the listeners, don't worry. We will come to the topic of trackers and stuff, but uh, yes. let me come back to the German Strength and Conditioning Academy where you are one of the co-founders, uh, can you please describe what the DKKA is? What is the problem with the German strength and conditioning education system? Why do we need the DKKA? Um, it is quite simple. Um, think about how a doctor is trained or a physiotherapist. So in the German system, a physiotherapist takes three years of study and practice. A doctor will take five years minimum, usually six years at university, and then they're put into the practical years. So they gain a large understanding um, of what they're dealing with. And still, we're usually not happy about how, how many doctors are educated because there's topics they don't know about. Or we are realizing that some physiotherapists, even after five years of training, still don't um, really have that uh, that broader base that you would think would be perfect. So how do we actually think that uh, spending 10 days <laughs> basically looking at machines is going to make you a trainer? But that's the entry system that you have to deal with when you're in Germany. We have to call it the B license and we have an A license. And what we think is that the A license should be at the absolute minimum, even though the content is usually 20 years outdated. Um, and so the question is, do we need the DKKA? Um, we don't need anything, but if we wanna be taken seriously and see strength and conditioning and being a fitness trainer as something that is taken seriously and something that is a respectable profession, you know, not like this, oh, look, this guy just wants to uh, hit on women, so he became a personal trainer. And that's what a lot of people think. No, what we want to do is take personal trainers and make them professionals, not scientists, but professionals who have a broad base of understanding. And this is where we go back. We don't care how long it takes for you um, <coughs> to go and uh, pass the initial tests. You can do it in, in, in three weeks. You can do it in a year or in two. What we want to see is that you have a basic understanding of anatomy, of physiology, of, of training, of exercise science, very basic nutrition. And we want to pass you at 70 to 75%. I don't know where we got this idea that it's completely okay to pass a course if you have 50% of the questions right. That's what comes from school. We call this a D or a four in the German system. Um, mm -hmm. How is that acceptable? 
I, I don't think that's acceptable. I think anything below 70 to 80% is basically showing that you know, go, need to go back to the drawing board. For some reason, it's become okay to be bad at what you do and call everyone who hacks revert and works for it a nerd. And I just think that's a bad sign of culture. That's just overindulgence and getting stuff fed to you. If you want to be a professional, you know to know these things, and that's what we want to do. And we will help you. We will help you get among the best. We will teach you every exercise. We will go through regressions. We will go through cues. We are going to keep continuing development. What we're not going to do is just sit by and just give you uh, a nice sheet of paper that tells you you can work in a fitness place. Okay, so people in Germany, fitness trainers, personal trainers, coaches, and whatever, check out the DKKA German Strength and Conditioning Academy. By the way, one remarkable thing about the DKKA is that they have the longest webinar on fitness trackers available in the universe. Uh, <laughs> it's actually done by myself. Uh, they, I was really honored when they asked me to create a webinar on fitness trackers and the target duration for this webinar was about one hour, maybe one and a half at most. And I recorded and recorded and it turned out to exceed four hours. It was cut down to four hours, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you can, you can actually uh, buy it online for, I believe, like 11 euros something. And you will get the full load of information on fitness trackers, how they work. It's in Germany, by the way, in German. And it's a webinar that is video plus audio. Bow, 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 bow. product placement yeah. here. Yeah, I admit, I admit, <laughs> shame on me. We're so yes. commercial, so commercial. <laughs> All right, let's go to the section of performance monitoring and metrics because we are the tracker bros. Yes, so Frank, um, or Frank in German. <laughs> um, we start with the obvious question. Um, do you use a tracker or any apps by yourself and for what purpose? Um, yes, I do. Um, I'm currently using this nice Elite HRV. How, how, I don't know what is it called. They're selling a, a standalone um, finger tracker. The CoreSense, I think. CoreSense, the CoreSense. Yeah. I'm, current, I'm currently reviewing this, and it works quite nicely, actually. It's, 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 a, it's a quite nice uh, wake up in the morning, just put your finger there and make sure it's, it's there. It's, it's a great device. Um, I use it with Iliad the app, HRV and HRV for training, um, which is another app that a lot of people of, that actually listen to this podcast probably already know. Um, for what purpose is a great question. Um, I'm using it mostly for curiosity. I'm not a professional athlete anymore, and my workload does not need to be monitored that, monitored that closely. So I'm doing it for curiosity to see um, what happens. What does it do? Um, I have a lot of uh, tags that I use to just uh, write about what was my day, my last day like? And, uh, what did I sleep? Did I drink a lot of energy drinks? Did I take any medications? How well did I sleep? Um, what was my training like? And I don't, I don't think I'm using it to actually structure what I do, but I do it mostly to see um, what 
effects to certain things that I do have on my workload, on my, my central nervous system? Um, how does it reflect in, in HRV and all these metrics? And this is quite interesting. I wouldn't say I could just use it to absolutely um, get crazy and structure my training with it because I'm not training that much. But what I can see is I can predict two days before I get sick that I get sick because I can actually see in that, that I just got an infection. I couldn't see it again a few days ago. I'm still a bit sick, as you can hear, and I could see it two days before it actually started, so I could just go and just load out myself with vitamin D and vitamin C and just pray that it's you know, like, load, and that worked. Um, this is something that I can see, or I can see how hard I trashed myself in training the day before. Um, this is reflected in the next day values. Um, yeah, this, this is what I use. Okay, so what tracker do you use to catch your heart rate? From a heart rate, I, I usually, usually use a Polar H7 right now. Um, in most interestingly, I, in most, most of the time now, I use it to just record my workouts. So I have an idea that I actually did what I was planning to do. Because the only cardio device I have, um, except for running, which I'm actually too lazy for because it always breaks my feet, is um, is a, uh, an ergometer. It's a cycle. It's a spinning bike, but it has absolutely no tech whatsoever. It's one of these old tomahawk bikes. So the only thing it has is a flywheel and uh, and a brake. So I use it to just uh, look at my heart rate and make sure that when I plan intervals and just it, the 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 resistance setting doesn't even have any numbers. So I just have to do everything by hand and just. How, how do we Germans say Pi mal Daumen? Afterwards, I can just look at the, the profile and what was recorded. If uh, my personal feelings of how hard it was actually correlated with um, what my cell phone later tells, tells me. Um, at, at, at first, I was, I was feeling quite bad, but my smartphone told me, you know, here, look, I have this data from the tracker, and basically you were a little pansy, so <laughs> do it again. <laughs> I learned to actually gauge my own uh, my own intensity level because if I'm like eighty percent of what should be possible, there's there's the twenty percent barrier I have to go through, and I learned it's there. I learned to push through it. I learned it feels even worse, and yeah. <laughs> Talking about feeling worse uh, i remember one conversation on the internet somewhere uh, somewhere yeah. in facebook and usually where i see you freaking out is when people incorrectly use the term tabata protocol that they think they do tabata if they uh, have a short uh, interval and i remember that you explained that you at least tried to replicate the original Tabata protocol. And I believe you used a tracker to monitor yes. the target yes. load or let's say VO2 max. Can you describe what you do and how it felt? <laughs> Especially in the letter. Well, well, you see, when you go, on, you go for Tabata, some actually write about the real Tabata protocol used by Tabata from the Japanese ice skating. So 
speed, sk speed skating, ice skating. I'm not sure. It was one of the one of them. It's it's a middle road sport. A lot of lactate, a lot of lactate, and they they trained in in, in a certain way, and he wanted to to replicate them. What he did was he took, I think it was it was around 20 athletes, and he just put them on an ergometer. He just tested them and he just pushed them. And I think he had he had a certain um, frequency where they had them at, and they should they should just not drop below a certain um, performance they were going. And usually it was around eight to nine, eight to nine sets when when this load was just not there. And what they did was they had these twenty second, basically all out bouts interspersed by 10 seconds of rest and once a week they had 45 minutes of normal cardio they have repeated this study and what they've tried to do it is is to do it with 170 percent vo2 max and everyone understanding what it means to work at 100 percent of your vo2 max at some point understands what it works what it, what it means when you say 170 percent this is this is basically near death experience. You have to learn to push yourself this hard. I, I I never did it at first at this intensity. I had to test it in the gym because I don't actually you know when I meet meet my max heart rate. I I I'm at my max heart rate, so I had to test it at the gym on another machine to see how far it actually goes and. At first, I couldn't push myself that hard. I know a few studies actually commented on this, that they tried to replicate it, but at first the athletes couldn't do it. Um, and then you go on the web and there's like, oh, look at this. You do you do four sets of Tabata. And like four sets of Tabata means, means you're dead. <laughs> Completely dead. You're going to die. But they don't do it. They just do push-ups. They do this and do that. And this is, this is how this never works seriously never works um and i just try to do it for around i try 10 i've never made it part of the eight weeks marker because it just doesn't work that way. okay so how did you use your tracker to determine when you have reached the 170 percent vo2 max because usually actually they, yeah, they don't show I, I, you this I, I VO2 max. I haven't. I haven't. Um, yeah, it's impossible. Uh, what I can see is that I should reach 100% heart rate. Um, I could actually do a testing on this, um, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, so you have to actually have a wattage meter and realize um, at what point do you uh, reach 100% of your maximum heart rate. And then you have to see that if that, that is around 100 watts, you would have to have 170 watts. Um, what, you, what you have to do to understand is um, that 170% is basically all-out sprint performance. And um, you spend a few minutes next to your implement afterwards. I cuddled my bike. I, I, I had days where I couldn't get up from the bike, so I spent doing recovery work on the bike, just to uh, just to have the feeling that if I step from the bike, I just don't fall over. <laughs> okay. It, 
So HRV. at that time, you did not uh, measure HRV, I suppose. I, I did. I did. <laughs> you did? I did. How was it? Uh, it didn't do that much, interestingly. Uh, it wasn't um, hard enough. It, it <laughs> took you around. You, I had a drop. If I, uh, what, what, what usually happens? Um, the measurements change a little, but what, what's interesting is, and I'm not sure I can um, look at this. In, in this way in, in an app is when you uh, monitor how your heart rate reacts to breathing. So what I try to do to measure, I try to use a form of box breathing. So I absolutely uh, standardize my breathing. It's like four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds exhale, four seconds hold, and do this again. So this way I have absolutely standardized breathing. And then you can see every interval of 16 seconds and how it looks on the, um, on the waveform. Um, and it, it looks basically quite interesting. The more stressed you are, the more uniform it gets. And you can see this even before the algorithm starts to pick up that you're stressed. So this is what I could see every single time. But it took around a week or two um, and there was a hard drop and then it recovered. And then around uh, week six, um, it started to actually drop to do um, down to the parasympathetic area and it started to warm me. And I used another app that actually uh, said that I should go to the doctor. And <laughs> it was quite funny because um, um, it was, was a big bit of Okay, so my summary is people don't try to replicate the original Tabata protocol. Okay, let's go to your current... Uh, profession as an athletic trainer yes. so for what scenarios in your job as an athletic trainer do your athletes use any sort of gear trackers apps whatever what metrics do you actually measure <laughs> um it, let's let's put this why should we even use any measures that's that's a good question there's there's a few reasons we can do this um, one reason is actually it makes your life easier. The second is um, you can do less work to get the same effect or you can get a better effect. Um, and a lot of this has to do with how much money is someone willing to pay for you. Because if you have a lot of measurements, you have to actually have some way of looking at these measurements. You're spending time. Most of the measurements you can take, you have to take every single day. So HRV just done three times a week is useless. Or uh, jump tests for uh, readiness. You have to do them every day at every single, every time at the same time. And then you have to look at them and you have to retrain and replan um, if you're actually using it for a form of agile periodization. So that's the first thing. Is my client ready to pay for it? And in what position am I? If I'm in the position where I have a million dollar sports team and I have, it's basically my job to do this day in and day out, I can probably do a lot more than I can do like, as, in the way that I currently work, where I am uh, a single trainer working with individual clients. Because my client needs to have the tracker, my client needs to have the gear, they need to have the app, they need to sync it with me somehow, and I have to look at it. So 
if someone wants to do that with me, that's great. I just, um, I, I add 30 to 40% to my hourly rate because I know I'm going to spend that time because it, yeah, it, it, it's definitely going to make things complicated. So it needs to be useful. Um, and it needs to give me information that goes beyond the training and beyond what the person can tell me. So most of the people I work with are not elite athletes because elite athletes have trainer teams. Yeah. I have one or two power lifters that are now pretty strong for German, for, for the German circuit. They're just qualifying for the American circuit um, nationals. So um, in, in that context, they're either very, very strong or not that strong, depending on the country you look at. So with the, even with these people, I don't use that many metrics. So I don't have the means and money to just spend and waste my time. So whenever I use a tracker or metrics, I use them to inform me. So a typical uh, thing would be heart rate. Heart rate is a very simple thing to use. Um, there's there's this, this great example um, with one guy, he didn't give a damn about recovery because he was going to a German, it was, it was, yeah, let's say he was German, it was actually Austrian, but doesn't matter. He, he wanted to go to this, uh, basically a ranger unit or SAS unit. That, and he was like, yeah, they are not going to take me right now in the condition I'm in. And I said, yeah, you know what? Selection there is hell. People are going to scream at you while you're being in a state of not having eaten for 10 hours and you still have to show leadership. So I don't actually care if you recover. And he's like, yeah. And then I was like, yeah, your endurance is shit. <laughs> and we just tested this. I just put him on a 2000 meter uh, rower and he just uh, did it in 830. I was really like, you know, this is maybe not too bad but you want to be an elite soldier. So that means it's really bad. Um, and when we took the, the, the United States army, uh, the older fitness tests and a few other tests coming from, from the SEAL teams where they did this study on who does it. And then I was like, okay, look, you need to run a mile this fast. You need to run 10 kilometers this fast. You need to do this hike with 30 to 40 kilograms of equipment in this speed. You need to be that strong in this time. Um, and she said, okay, this, this, this. And I said, okay, you know what? I have this friend of mine and we, we spent some time um, in, in Switzerland and they had this Oxygen mobile. He's, a, he's at the university there. So I said, you know what? You're coming by. And he, we tested him and he had absolutely average VO2 max. We tested him, we let him run and his VO2 max was, was, I think it was around 44. And I don't remember his absolute value, but relatively speaking, it wasn't that high. And so, so he would he would absolutely have died in selection. They would just crush him. So I told him, you know what? We need to get you. We have six months. That's not much. So we're going to get your heart rate down, your resting heart rate. We're going to get your endurance up. And what I want to see is in six months, I want to see basically elite relative VO2 max. And like, okay, let's do this. So what we did was we looked at a few studies and there are some insane studies that have been done. And 
really, I, I don't know what they do to people. I, I can only do this to one in a hundred people and everyone else would cry. And this guy was tough as nails, so he did it. But what we did was we looked at studies that showed um, the most VO2 max increase within a short time frame. And we used the exact protocols and added long hikes to it. <laughs> so basically they did interval training and long hike every day. So to have a form of polarized training. And what I needed to know was um, what his actual level of performance was. And we only had this Oxymon mobile for one day. And when we came back, so we could only measure him at the beginning and at the end. And that meant that we couldn't just use it every, every week to see if he's improving. So what we did was we just tested how well his heart rate actually uh, corresponded to his VO2 max. And it's nice. You can use this and you can see it and you see these profiles. And there is a few, are a few studies on this. <clears throat> Um, so you can use VO2 max and VO2 reserve, which is basically you have a resting heart rate in the morning. Let's say you wake up and you have 55 and your maximum heart rate is 190. So there's, um, you, you take 190 minus 55. And what do you get? You get your heart rate reserve. And it turns out that heart rate reserve and VO2 reserve basically correlate so closely that you could say they are basically aligned. So I just told him, you know what? That's easy. You just take a tracker. You just get some kind of clock and you just program it in a way that you have to at least run at 172 beats per minute. It was like, oh, you are fucking crazy. Say, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> I say, and I'm like, like, yeah, that's a lot, but that's basically 90% of your max. And I want you to run at a load that within two minutes, gets you to 172 and not more than 180. So I want you to run these intervals of five minutes for five minutes, then three minutes of rest. And I want you to do this because this is a yeah, that At the beginning, he wasn't to do, able to do it because this is very, very hard. But at some point he got to it. And what we did was we created this workout where he did three sets uh, like like five times five, it's pretty funny. Five like 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 in a like in strength training, five times five. He has like five minute intervals at ninety percent or higher, but lower than one hundred percent VO two max. So this is basically the the zone that is um, somewhere between. Hey, my body can take it, and I'm in hell. And we did this, and this is what we. This is this is basically a good way to do it. You just take heart rate reserve, and you just ignore everything else because you have this one metric you can tell people take this watch and it should show 170 and if it's below 170 you're being too weak so you have to program this thing to annoy you this is this is how it works this is this is pretty yeah. simple you can tell it to someone they can program it and now half of the endurance people are going to tell me you are fucking crazy and i'm i'm basically saying no i'm not this is interesting. What, they go what they're going to do in selection is crazy. So if he can't do this, he's never going to be a soldier in such a unit. So I don't care. Recovery didn't matter. This guy is going to be thrown out of airplanes. So I'm not going to think about things like, oh my God, I'm a bit depressed in the morning. That's the least of his problems if he can't take this. 
and they're going to push it much much harder because they're going to take the sleep away <laughs> so okay. this works this is very interesting that you actually don't need to measure real vo2 max which is costly uh, you need to go to a lab or have one of these mobile devices and uh, you don't need they to the car yeah it's expensive to car yeah these devices currently like four or five thousand euro the lowest price ones and um, we have multiple devices on the market <clears throat> that try to estimate vo2 max from running or biking cycling with a watt meter uh, there are endless discussions going on how accurate they are, how far they are away from, from lab and so on. So it's very interesting to learn from you that you can basically derive VO2 max or use it in percentage of VO2 max uh, by correlating uh, heart rate uh, reserve to VO2 max. Yes, it's, it's, it's more accurate than, than um, heart rate max and VO2 max. There's... It, it really depends on, on, on how well trained you are because then your uh, heart rate uh, max goes, uh, your resting heart rate in the morning goes down. And then it just uh, makes things complicated. Um, but yeah, it works. He actually went to 58, by the way, 58 um, from 44 to 58 in under six months. <laughs> so this is, well, that was pretty good. Okay, Frank. Um, you know that our listeners, many of them use HRV and one of the apps or rings or trackers or whatever. What do you think? Does HRV work? Do you use it as a tool for load management somewhere? Is it a proper uh, tool? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a more complicated tool that you have to learn um, with how it works with every individual. You have all these numbers, RMSSD, and you have the, the, the algorithms. So you can use it, I'm pretty sure, but it really depends on, on the type of athlete that you have. I have never gotten any data for strength people that is that useful, um, except... For, you know, you have these aggregate values that come in like from one to 10. Um, what, I, what I try to, to see is um, two things. First of all, I want a baseline and this baseline gets adjusted. I want them to do it in all, all, you know, just standardize it. That's the first thing. Now, this only works when you have someone dedicated to do this. If they don't do this, I'm not wasting my time with it because... If they wake up at different times of the day, then forget to do it. And then they didn't. one time they drink a coffee, one time not. Then they drink a monster energy drink. Then they repeat it at five o'clock in the evening. That doesn't work. So if, if you don't have um, consistent values, it doesn't work. Um, what I want to see is, is there a sudden change after a workout on the next day? And sometimes this happens. Sometimes you have this one sudden change where you realize something happened. It doesn't have to tell me that I have to stop what I'm doing, but I, I see when I have a sudden change um, from from uh, a 10 to a 7 and six, and you see the, the um, it's not a waveform, but let's call it a waveform. The waveform gets more uniform and you see a, a change um, from the baseline of maybe 20 milliseconds in, in the interval range. You see something happen. It doesn't tell me that I can change things now. It just tells me 
this actually did something that initiated a longer recovery. And I will not change anything. What I want to see is, if I do what I'm doing, does it get better? Great. Or, I, sometimes I work with people that do strength training, I work a bit differently. I don't want it to get better. I use a lot of um, concentrated loading techniques because a lot of people, if they train normally, they're going to burn themselves out or they're not going to uh, get the results they want. So what I do is um, I periodize in a way where I use two to three weeks of uh, normal or lighter work. And then, then I increase intensity and volume. So they're working heavier and they're doing more. And if I don't see a hit there, I didn't do my, my job right. And then there's something that I call red weeks. So I just, just use a relative intensity table. I've seen it with Mladen Jovanovic and a few others. And I call them red weeks because the load they're getting in these weeks is not designed to be sustainable. It's done for two or three weeks and then it's going down again. But if I see an HRV value in that time where it's basically telling, hey, there's a 10, you're perfectly rested, then either my athlete is cheating, which is absolutely possible because um, if you do online coaching, write a training plan, not with a person all the time, they may be cheating. And then you just ask them, hey, have you been really doing this? Is this too hard for you? Should we adjust this? Or if there are people who are actually want to meddle, you just tell them just to just to fucking do it. It really depends on what they want and who they are. But what I want to see is I want to get this worse. I want to see this get worse. Um, what I what I do is this um, this training where basically you push someone to the limit, then you get it, then you ease up again. Because you have development going on in these uh, two weeks that you won't get in others. But you can't do this for long. You can't just trash someone all day. So I mostly use it as a confirmation that what I do is working. So because if you go through two weeks of red week heavy loading and you're not affected, you're a mutant. And speaking of a mutant, I have one guy that doesn't react to it. <laughs> uh, the reason is actually that he had an abnormal heart, which, which I have um, never heard of before, but he had a resting heart area of 36 to 40. And he doesn't do any cardio training. Um, so when I asked him, yes, he said, yeah, I went to a cardiologist once. They actually tested me. And they have shown that I have a heart that is one time, one time, five times as big as that of normal people. I said, is it just the heart? And it, no, it's actually the chamber. So he has such a big heart chamber that he's pushing so hard and his body does not react like anything I would have ever thought before and uh, HRV is useless for him. For all others, I can see it. Alright. Um, yes, uh, Frank, I can confirm your observations. Uh, when I when my beach volleyball season ended, um, I mean, when I was playing beach volleyball with a lot of cardio and such, um, and I stopped 
and I started strength training. I was witness that my HRV went down to the basement really badly. So it was a very good sign that it was a complete new load um, that I'm not used to anymore. And I could really watch my HRV drop. And I couldn't get out of that sink for a long time. And I reduced load and everything, but nevertheless, I stayed in the basement and uh, my my sleep suffered badly. And uh, then I, I decided to start again with cardio and that was the only way I got it back up. It was really weird. Um, so it's a good sign that HRB works uh, even with strength training. So when you have a new, um, a new way of training that you're not used to, let's say it's eccentric load, or you just start <laughs> with strength training and you haven't done it before, or you are just uh, somebody who does only strength training and you start with cardio, you have immediately a drop in HRV the next day and it will, it will stay. Can you confirm this, Frank? It, it might be it might be genetic actually I've, I've tested a lot of cardio interventions and they haven't um, budged my my hrv much but i remember i, I bought this k box it's the it's a flywheel training device and um, i haven't used a barbell for my own training since i own a k box um, but what was interesting is i tried actually introducing it and tried eccentric overload, which is basically I'm doing a squat and um, someone else is just helping me and it's pushing me down harder eccentrically. And it's a lot of fun, not, but it's a very effective uh, strategy. But when I use it and I haven't done it in a while, I go from an aggregate 10 to an aggregate 4 in 24 hours. So it's just that ridiculously hard. Okay, um, we were talking about strength training and the load we experience there is rather neuromuscular. Now, when we go to more cardio-related sports, like team sports and such, or cardio itself, like running, rowing and stuff. Now, we have multiple ways of m measuring uh, strain yeah, they usually call it strain, but you can call it load. And the different devices have different uh, metrics for that. Some call it just trimp, which is old school banister style trimp. So, or the whoop device calls it strain. Then we have like with uh, Strava relative effort. We have TSS and so on. Now, do you use any of these cardiovascular load metrics no um, I don't mostly because my clients are usually not team sport athletes and they're usually not endurance athletes that have let's say they're not that competitive they're just doing it for fun and for most of the people that I work with, there's either this, we don't need it because he's not going to do that much, or she's not going to do that much, um, or I don't care. <laughs> and this is the most interesting thing, but I have a few uh, clients who are technical people. Technical refers to everyone from, from firefighter to soldier to policeman. And they usually ask me, 
to get fit for extreme scenarios. And I'll be honest, I, I don't care. What, what, I, what, what I don't want to do is uh, break them into pieces. But um, it, it really depends. Some people, depending on, on where they're going to go and what they're going to do, especially as tactical athletes, is they need to be used to excessive strain. So I, I don't need to manage this because their jobs are going to have short phases of stress that are much worse than anything I could do. I could probably chronically break them, but I never have that much time. They're not elite athletes. They just need to be um, tactically, tactically astute. They need to be ready to um, do their work. So um, when I work with these people, it's usually for a selection or to keep them fit. If I want to keep them fit, I will never use loads that are so hard that they're going to uh, actually be problematic. Because if you have eight to ten hours of a, of a law enforcement job or eight to ten hours in Afghanistan um, sitting somewhere in a tent, and are trying to keep awake because you're you're doing duty and you don't you work at night you can't use very heavy loads for that because they're going to break and they're going to fail at the jobs and that would be bad but when i prepare them i don't care because they they're usually not in a situation where they have this problem they have to be pushed to the limit because they want to do it so um i never get into situations where i have to monitor cardiovascular load long time um, so I don't do it because it wouldn't give me any more decision-making power. Any metric I use has to give me the possibility to make a different decision on something. I don't measure things that I will never use just because they're interesting, except for when I actually use them for myself because I think that's interesting. But it's, it's, not, it's for me, it's, it's, it's interesting. Because when, I, when I'm with a client, they pay me to do stuff. So I'm not going to sell them stuff that I can work with. Um, okay, so this is for single clients, but if we look at, let's say, team sports, where today's uh, coaches seem to have problems of applying the correct load. So do you think in this context, it would make sense to monitor load um, with any sort of, of metric? Like, how much have we done today and how how bad was it then the next day considering HRV and should we do less tomorrow? But what is less? How can we measure less? And then maybe the load gets, you know, in, in, in a better uh, band so people can handle it. Well, um, now we're going to, going to get into a bit of politics, I'm sure, but... Um, I work with individual clients because I don't want to work with teams because teams usually involve, involve a trainer team and usually someone that isn't going to um, click with me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, I have learned, I said this at the beginning of the podcast, I have learned to use science in a way for survival. So I'm going to tell you if you're wrong. And I'm, I'm going to do so nicely. I'm going to, yeah, you know, we could use this as this, that. Then, then usually in any organization, someone's going to say, oh, we have always worked like this. We've always done it this way. And I'm going to say, yeah, maybe that's a stupid way. And here's a better one. Oh, are you calling me stupid? Yeah, no, I'm calling you working. 
yeah, but we've done it this way and these one run these metrics. Yeah, great. I want to sell those silver medals my way. Why not do it the smart way? Are you calling me stupid? Are you saying you're smarter than me? And that's that's usually where where you're thinking. No, I'm just trying to get some metrics involved. And then usually a head if this is the head trainer, I'm out of the team already because yes, I'm going to tell them they're stupid. If they, I, it has happened to me. It has happened to me in teams where I was. I am not the most compatible with people that are not able to reflect. I have learned that when I worked as a business consultant, that this is something that works very, very, very well with top managers, like at the very top, because they're competitive. You can talk to them like that, and they love it because nobody usually their ass, asses are kissed. But this is not something, if you have ever been in a German team sport, you realize that the head trainer is the boss and he's the king. Um, so if you ask me, could these things be used to monitor and improve team load? Yes. Do I think it's realistic? Oh, hell no. Because you would need someone to look at these metrics. You would have to have, let, let's take a soccer. Let's take a soccer fine, a soccer team. You have at least 16 to 22 players that you have to monitor. So you have to have 22 metrics. So one, someone has to look at this all day. The head trainer isn't going to do it. Okay? Mm -hmm. He's not going to do it. So it's usually the, the strength and conditioning guy who in Germany is always underpaid. Some of them earn less than the median income. Like, you go to university for five years, do an internship for, for two years, and, and then you're paid nothing. So, but this guy may be smart, and he may be less smart than me, which means that he's going to be compatible. He's going to be empathetic. He's going to know how to work politics. And then he's going to read all this. And let's say a miracle happens, and all 22 of these soccer people actually wake up every morning and do take their measurements at the right time. Still, you have to make decisions. So you have to discuss these decisions with the head trainer or with the athletic team. And that is normal. Everyone should be working together. And I'm used to this from teams all over the world. If you look at how this works in a football team in the United States, it, they, they, they are professionals down, down to the last man. They're expected to work this way. Yeah, of course, the head coach is the one that makes the last call, but yeah, there's a guy and he's the head of athletic management and head of athletic training, and he's going to, to make these decisions and the head trainer is going to deal with them, but they're going to do it. I don't think that's even possible. I think if you're going to tell, tell the trainer, yeah, let's do this. Like five of the athletes, they're not that well trained today and they're not that ready. Their readiness is bad. Maybe take them out. And he's going to be like, why? Why should I pamper them and make everyone else work hard? That's bad for team sports. <laughs> <You're> like, okay. <laughs> you have to have someone who knows what this means. This person has to interact with everyone from the team and for a longer time to know what do these numbers mean. And, and he has to talk to someone. If there's a weird now that person. And he needs to be trusted enough so that person says, yeah, of course. I was partying last night. Don't tell the head coach. And he's going to be like, yeah, okay. Or he has to say, yeah, my girlfriend just left me. 
so that's that's a hit. Yeah, um, this is this is something that is absolutely thinkable, but I'm not sure that's going to work because there are many metrics involved, there are many decisions involved, and there's just too many nodes <coughs> uh, working on the same part. You would have to set this up. You would have to change the whole structure of how teams work around here to make that work. It gets worse when you get down to youth. These are professionals, but you would have started to, to start where maybe youth people, that's when parents get involved. Two of my friends work with the youth teams. When parents get involved, shit hits the fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it would be a great addition if you use these metrics, but I think it's more doable when you do it with individuals than with a big team because for a team effort, everyone has to work together. Everyone has to know their role. Egos have to be set aside and people need to make decisions based on the data and on what they see and how they interact. I think there's too much ego in sport for many teams to make that work. I think it would be great, but come on. <laughs> if you if you have, uh, you, you need a whole different level of professionalism to make this work. Okay, um, so talking about individual athletes again, um, the recovery part. Um, athletes who are under heavy load need to take care of proper recovery too. Um, what interventions for recovery improvements do your clients actually do? What are people willing to do? Ah, what are people willing to do? <laughs> that, that's very individual. Uh, ice bath. You know, <laughs> some people love this stuff. I, I mean, you see, I had this one guy and he wanted to do a selection. So I, at some point I wanted to test whether or not he's going to actually do this. I wasn't sure, you know, um, military elite units are not for everyone. And it's okay that it's not for everyone. I would fail. I, I may have done it when I was younger, but my, my uh, eyesight was too bad, so they kicked me out. Um, so this guy, I, I just called him um, up and, and I told him, you know, um, please call me or send me a video. I think sending a video, but better. Two at night of you taking an ice bath at 2 a.m. singing the national anthem. And he just, he was, why? And I told him, you know, because people are going to ask things of you that are much more crazy than this. And if you're not ready to do this, you're not ready to do that because this is harmless. This is just me being stupid, but I want to see it <laughs> just to see your commitment. And he did it. He did it at 2 a.m. And it's fine. This is, this is something. So some people are willing to do crazy shit. So some people are going to do ice baths. And if you tell people um, not to go out partying, they're going to do that. Um, and some people are not even capable of just eating enough protein. So it's very individual um, what people are willing to do. Um, so the first thing, of course, is um, to, to work with people to get their sleep to an acceptable level. Um, but it's not always fixable, but it's the first thing I want to do. I want to see people sleep, sleeping at least seven hours. Yeah, that that uh, would be the next question, the sleep monitoring. Um, are your clients aware that uh, sleep is very important and are they taking care so far? 
that, that's two things. Um, are people aware of the importance of sleep? I tell them that we don't need to look further if they don't get seven hours. I'm not, I'm not trying to get them to sleep the full nine-hour elite athlete schedule. But if you don't get seven hours, there's six, seven hours is the minimum. So I've, I, I come from business consulting and I know how top managers work. They, they try to get by in four to five hours. And at some point, they're just so fogged that they think this is their normal behavior. So um, with athletes, usually they realize that sleep is important. Do I monitor it? I haven't actually done that too much. I just want them to have a set time every day, even on the weekend where they stand up and just tell them, you know when to go to bed. So um, if you can't sleep, that's fine. Just try, just try to breathe in, breathe out, relax your body and then try to think you're uh, in a dark room or in a dark alley under the sky and there's stars and it's dark and it's nice and it's warm and um, then you go to sleep. So that's what I tell them. And then I ask them, how have you been sleeping? I, I, I don't do the whole sleep monitoring thing because that's another metric I would have to take care of. If they want to do it, I tell them, yes, do it. But don't sweat over it too much because some devices are great but if you're going to measure, for example, um, with the older Fitbits, I know if you put it to an aggressive, to an aggressive setting, it measured me sleeping one and a f one hour fifteen per night. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mostly because I was moving a lot. So I, I think nowadays there are much better devices. I think the Aura Ring is one of these devices that is much better um, for tracking your sleep, but. What, what's important for me is that they actually get their room dark enough and aim to sleep seven hours. If then things are not working out, okay, let, we talk, we talk to each other, I, then I try to, to increase this, I want to see what are they doing at night before we are measuring this. Of course, I could go into the deep science of um, how their, their sleep phases work, but they would have to pay for that. So if you are sending me sleep logs for a week, I will actually look at them, but I'm going to charge you for it. So do you want me to look at how you sleep? Do you want me to do me to do that? Okay, then then you pay me for it. It's okay, it's fine. I think it's boring. I think you should just learn that there should be some hours of deep sleep and that you should sleep at least seven hours, even if Arnold Schwarzenegger does say something different. Yeah. Um, and if you can sleep eight hours, and if you can manage after heavy load, um, actually nine hours is great. And people are going to say like, what, you sleep nine hours? Yeah, um, work out four to five hours a day and work a whole day, and uh, nine hours maybe what you need. And some people don't. Also, I agree. Yeah. Um, I, I agree, knowing I love, and I love, doing. I love sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, knowing and doing. Are two different things. Uh, Marcus and I, we run a Facebook group on Aura Ring and Sleep Science, and we did a fair amount of study reading, and we, I think we, we did our homework. We know the basics. We know what to do, how we could improve our sleep. Marcus does. I don't. It's not that <laughs> simple. You know, when you go for training, let's say your training ends at eight o'clock, you need to take a shower, you need to pack your stuff, you need to drive home, you need to eat, you need to eat late. 
because you couldn't eat before practicing. And then you have already violated like a couple of rules of sleep hygiene, you know, like eating late, eating maybe carbs, too much carbs, which will increase your resting heart rate, at least at the beginning of the night and so on and so on and so on. <laughs> I know I would have to turn off the light at like 10.30 to comply to my circadian rhythm. I just don't because yes. at 10.30, I, I want to, you know, finish my series. It's, it, it's, it's, it's just you here. In, in, Is it only me? Yeah. In fact, I'm sitting here uh, doing this podcast, uh, having my blue light blockers on. Okay. So the, the whole internet is, uh, is doing the right thing. It's just me? Yeah. I will sleep like a baby tonight. Okay. Um, I'm the guy that is usually awake at 2 a.m. watching Netflix, realizing that that was a stupid idea. So I'm <laughs> with Daniel. I'm with Daniel. But then again, I'm not. I'm not the athlete. I I think what I am doing right now, I couldn't do it when I was uh, still really active and still still pushing the schedule ahead when I was very when I was young and it was in China, when I was in Thailand. Um, I mean, we did do a lot, but there was one thing I did in China. I slept like a baby. I, I slept a lot. I went to bed early, which never happened before. Um, and I woke up at 5.40 every morning, so we just fell to bed. Um, and even though the beds were actually more or less wooden, wooden logs, Okay. I see you have a very practical view. You're not a tracker nerd like Marcus and I. You know, we we like trackers as such. We we just use it for everything, whether it makes sense or not. Just we, we find it interesting and, and you know, new coming out, we want to check them out and so so what do you think are trackers overhyped? It's a good question. It's but it's hard to say. Basically, I have a lot. I, I, I'm a nerd like you guys, definitely. I read thousands of studies. I read studies on stuff I will never ever work with just because it's interesting. Um, and I love having all this data available. I love having all this stuff. But I think it makes sense to use a tracker only when the metrics give you something. But we buy this stuff uh, out of curiosity because there are uh, new features from first beat new uh, yeah just to see the the whole thing evolving and uh, yeah. i think uh, in reality we are only at the start right now yeah i agree for example let's say the new garmin forerunner 945 came out and it said yeah i have this and that many features from company first beat they're so great now we look at them from the 16 first beat features many of them are questionable from a scientific point of view many of them do not apply for us because we are not runners we're not cyclists with a watt meter and from the 16 first beat features only like two or three really help us <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like to I like to put it this way. I'm a I'm an amateur photographer. I love cameras. I love all this talk about cameras. And they are, believe me, these forums when you go online, 
they're the same as fitness forums. People are bickering about specs and how cool they are and, and how they, they, they use it. And my father was a professional photographer. He, he made his money with all this stuff. And it, it's, it's crazy. People are, and he won awards. He was one of the best nature photographers alive when he was still alive. He unfortunately died. And this is how I got into photography. But what's, what's crazy is that people are nowadays discussing that you cannot buy a certain brand because they don't have this feature. And this feature was introduced. It never existed before. It was introduced in 2017. And you know, yeah, you can absolutely never buy ever a camera again and not use this. Of course, that's absolutely true. There was no great photographer in, in the 1900s, never in, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. They didn't exist because this feature didn't exist. And it doesn't mean that the feature is a bad thing. It just means that maybe you use it, maybe you can use it, maybe it's useful, but it can just be as stupid. It's, it's just it's not that necessary. Of course, there's a lot of game changing, but one of the things that's important to realize is we still have the same buddies. Yeah, we, we didn't just evolve, we are not the Borg. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 one of the things that's going to change soon. You're seeing a lot of surgery being done, and you see baseball athletes hitting, and, and some some of the pitchers are throwing at speeds that you have never heard before. And the reason is they got tendons changed. So yeah, maybe technology is going to change sports in the future, but not yet. I, I, it's probably not about the metrics. It's, it's always about how you use them, how they inform your work and what you do with it. And it's, it's, it's very different. I love biomechanics. I love looking at this stuff. And then I walk into a gym and I'm not talking to my athlete about that. I'm just saying something stuff like, hey, you have to put your chest up. Come on, push harder. Oi, your knees, knees, elbows. Come on, what, what's with your elbows? I'm not telling them about lines of, of, of power and, and how their balance is supposed to be and how their barbell is on, on certain points and how it, how their quadriceps should work and how it does work. They don't care. I have to make them work. Of course, it's interesting to know all this stuff, but it's not always practical to use it. So, I mean, it's, it's super interesting. It's the same in, in the hobby. You can just you take a camera and make a great picture with every camera that's around. But if you look at the discussions, people are bashing their heads and telling you it's impossible. And that's, that's basically the same with technology. Technology is, is a market and sometimes you can use it and you can use it to guide your decisions or you can guide it. You can guide your own curiosity. Curiosity is great. I love measuring all kinds of stuff. I put batteries to my head just to uh, just to use. Um, it, it's a pretty crazy. You use a battery and a, and a power uh, amplifier. It's not an amplifier. Some kind of transformer that actually puts it into a certain stream of electricity, and you put it to your brain, and it actually increases your brain activity in that area. Um, it's pretty new science. But is this stuff necessary? No, it's interesting. <laughs> it's just interesting. Yeah. 
it's, it's interesting to use it may have application in the future but oh, okay um coming back uh to your book about the nutrition um and calories do you think trackers are capable of tracking calories accurate enough uh, to weight control is possible with them um, and especially what are your thoughts on uh, energy expenditure during weightlifting uh, this is this is this is tough you see accurate enough is possibly a very good uh, description i know that some studies have shown that they could accurately predict within five percent error margins the energy expenditure over a day that's great five, yeah between five, five and ten between five and ten i would say in general yeah um that's that's great i mean it basically means that you're going to fall within 600 calories so the problem is if someone goes and eats one two thousand seven hundred or three thousand three hundred that may be the difference between gaining weight and losing weight. So there is still the necessity to um, check these numbers, um, to, to calculate them against maybe other, other tools. And then you have to watch the scale. Whatever you measure, you're, not, you're never going to have a perfect measure. And that's why I'm so adamant about, um, about calories. If you're not losing weight, if you should, then you're eating maintenance or more. Now, if you are not doing this in one week, you may just be a woman who actually is going to fluctuate around two kilograms over the month, which drives everyone crazy. But this is okay. This is water weight. This can happen. That's why we actually track weight long term. But if after two months, nothing has happened, you're eating. Okay? And if you're eating exactly what the tracker tells you, then you have to go down. And if you're losing weight, if you should be gaining some, then either this is great because you're a beginner athlete or you should you need to eat more. Um, I use a rolling average. Now, the easiest thing actually is if you have a scale that connects to your smartphone, just step on time and then uh, it works out. So, um, yeah, this is, this is something that can be done. But the problem is, this has to be validated for every single device, not just for an algorithm, but every single device would need to be tested. And I've seen data that is so all over the place. Yeah, as I said in but, previous yeah, podcasts, say, it's, uh, yeah. they, they, they did a couple of uh, tests and various studies, but what they test is like all devices. And they also test certain scenarios, which is like 20 minutes treadmill or house cleaning only. But, you know, you get information about 20 minutes house cleaning then, but you don't get a total. How accurate is the watch in total over a week, over a regular day or a regular week of normal life? I haven't seen a study about that. No. Not a single one. It's very hard because you actually have to lock people up or give them very, very expensive doubly labeled water and nobody wants to do that. Um, I, I, have, I, think, I think it got cheaper. So it's, it's, it's around 10,000 paper. So this is going to be highly expensive. Or you put them in a, in a calorimetric room where you actually measure all the calories. And also, 
who would sponsor the expensive devices to find out that the accuracy basically sucks <laughs> or yeah, likely I, to I, suck <laughs> i mean there's 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 one one study i remember reading where they failed with an error margin of 20% this is useless i, I mean i burn around th uh, 3200 calories a day if i have an error margin of 20% upwards and downwards uh, I, I'm anywhere between 2,600, 2,500, and 3,800 calories. One is a pretty nice diet, and the other one is me getting fat. So this is this isn't useful. It's maybe and it, it gets worse because usually these algorithms are made for normal people. Now now put a 130 kilogram power lift on this. Yeah, this um, doesn't work. And and they they're going. I remember when I was doing a lot of strength training, that one of the trackers I had it was an older Fitbit told me that I had just expended five thousand six hundred calories, and I was using um, a body media device, and it was telling me I was expending three thousand seven hundred calories. So these were absolutely in agreement, as you can see. <laughs> Um, crazy enough, the, the, the body media still overestimated my energy expenditure by around 300 calories, which is fine, which is in this margin of error, but then, then it went pretty close, so when I went running, it actually got very, very close and very, very nice, except when I went and put it on the wrong arm and then drove a car. <laughs> decided that driving a car yeah, yeah. is nothing else than a marathon. That was a, well, I, I think this was a, a main design flaw of the body media. <laughs> it, it was a design flaw. Yeah. It's, it's the crazy part. They still got very, very accurate, except for a few smaller problems. Yeah. Problems that are solved just to introduce other problems that are even worse. It, it, it's still the only devices I still use. Um, I have this, this Senseware software and I use them. Otherwise, people can just use whatever they want, but it shouldn't be too reliant on them because um, they can show pretty wild things. Yeah. Okay. So, Frank, we have reached the end of our podcast. And... Yes. Uh, I would like to open the stage for you that you tell our audience where they can find your two books, one about uh, strength and resistance training and athletic training, and the other one about nutrition. And maybe you repeat the names and maybe you have a little present for them, uh, which is a discount <laughs> code. Uh, before you answer, first a disclaimer, Marcus and I do not benefit in any way from this referral. Except, of course, that we, from now on, are allowed to bomb Frank for life with stupid questions around physiology and training theory. Frank, stage is yours. Okay, so first of all, my, my website, all, all my books are in German. So um, if you're not reading German, um, I have never actually put them to Google Translate, but this might be the most interesting thing to read ever. I know one guy actually did it. And he said he could read my book after putting it through Google Translate. So um, if you're not speaking German, um, that might be an option. Um, 
If not, I'll give you. I'll just give you. I'll give you your money back if you want to try. <laughs> I don't <laughs> care. I'm, I'm, I'm not that troublesome. No, um, it's on, on www.tagerfitness.com, which is T-A-E-G-E-R-F-I-T-N-E-S-S.de. Um, there's two books. The first one is Stärkerfreiterschneller, uh, which deals with everything training from strength training to conditioning to barbells to to body weight training to kettlebells i have it all in there to training theory how to build training plans and training ideas science and a little bit of philosophy of science for all the people done this stuff i don't know why i clipped this but it was interesting at the time the second book uh, is about nutrition and um, it's uh, basically it's everything nutrition from the basics to how to apply it in different sports for different scenarios, uh, about an appraisal about hunger, about an appraisal about vitamins, minerals, uh, dairy, nutrition myths, and actually an appraisal of every single diet that is out there because there is a way to categorize every single diet out there in a nice framework. And I didn't even invent it. Alan Aragon did, together with his co-authors, um, with the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So that is great. Um, yeah, that is what we want to do. If you're German, German speaking, and you want to become a great trainer in the future, just visit www.dkka.de and try to register. If it doesn't work, hit me up on Facebook or Kevin Koenig, who is our CEO. You can hit him up. He answers. He's, going, he's probably going to sell you our certificate, but he's going to sell you great reason <laughs> okay yeah i answer in, in german and english a lot on facebook um just try it. it it's going to work out i'm going to answer at some point i'm probably going to ignore you on instagram and i'm probably going to overlock emails because emails are mostly spam nowadays so uh, there's a high likelihood i'm going to ignore it <laughs> so thanks a lot frank um and I would like to repeat uh, the two Facebook groups that Marcus and I run. Uh, an English one about state-of-the-art fitness tracking and performance tracking and what's new is the group called Fitness Trackers for Human Performance Tuning and Analysis. And for those interested in sleep in general, sleep science, and also the aura ring which we have introduced in an earlier podcast we have the group aura ring the science of sleep health tracking and recovery so thanks a lot frank for joining our show today yes it was, it was a, a pleasure <laughs> yeah and we had a few bumps uh, during the re recording uh, i had a, a voltage drop out <laughs> again, again again and again uh yeah and a couple of other uh, problems over here. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot for joining. Yes, thanks, Frank. Yes, thanks for having me. And I hope I could get, so, get you some insights about how one crazy German guy with individual clients works. You did. You yeah, did. it was really cool. <laughs> All right, bye, Frank. Bye. Bye-bye.